Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Kirstein M. McKenzie, author of Lagarde Cousses, The Life of John Hamilton, 1620-1689, Part 1. A Secret War Rages Between Louis XIV and William of Orange. To think that the English could have had complete religious freedom as early as 1688, but basically they didn't want it. And so I began to wonder if I couldn't maybe bring this story more to life and get more people to know about it, if I did try my hand at fiction. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am delighted to be joined by Patricia Bernstein, author of the novel A Noble Cunning, The Countess and the Tower. I've even said I think there should be a Winifred Maxwell Day in the English calendar. Patricia Bernstein was born in El Paso and grew up in Dallas. She earned a degree of distinction in American studies from Smith College and taught English at Smith for four years before returning to Texas. In Houston, she founded a public relations agency and published dozens of articles in media venues as varied as Texas Monthly, Cosmopolitan, and the Smithsonian. She is the author of three nonfiction books, including $10 to Hate, The Texas Man Who Fought the Klan, which was named one of the 53 best books ever written about Texas by the Austin American Statesman. Patricia lives in Houston with her husband, Alan Bernstein, where she sings with opera in the Heights and other organizations and admires the achievements of her three wonderful and very different daughters. Today, I'll be talking to her about her debut novel, which is being published by History Through Fiction, A Noble Cunning, The Countess and the Tower. Well, I'd, I'd like to start just asking you about A Noble Cunning. What is it about? What's the synopsis of the novel? Uh, well, basically, A Noble Cunning is based on the true story of a woman named Winifred Maxwell, a persecuted Catholic noblewoman who concocted a very elaborate plot to try to rescue her husband from the Tower of London the night before his scheduled execution. Uh, something which really had not been done before and has not been done since, uh, not in the way that she that she tried to do it anyway. So I was fascinated by the story and uh, decided to try and take it on in a fictional framework. 
Well, it really is a remarkable story, and it's hard to believe that it's it's based on true events. Um, can you give us a little bit of the historical context for what was happening in the United Kingdom at that time? Well, another th- reason that it interested me was that it it really depicted the terrible uh, persecution of Catholics for over 200 years in England after Henry VIII decided that he was going to be head of the church in England and they weren't going to be beholden to the Pope anymore. And it was a, a, a long period of tremendous religious, religious tumult, not only in England, but really throughout Europe as well. Uh, when Henry left the church, the Roman Catholic Church, he really had no idea of, of vastly changing the Church of England or inventing a new religion. He was pretty conservative as far as religious practice went. But of course, once you open the door to the Protestant Reformation, the whole thing came in and there were soon, you know, lots of different sects and and different ways of wanting to worship and people, some groups became very fanatical about their own way. And uh, over time, they became um, extremely paranoid and distrustful of those who remained devoted to the old church. Part of that was because after Henry died and after his son Edward died, his oldest daughter, Mary, the, who became Mary I of England, was a devout Catholic and she was determined to return England to the Roman Catholic Church. And in the process burned over 300 so-called heretics, including the Archbishop of Canterbury at, uh, at Smithfield and at other locations in England. And that was never forgotten. And then when Elizabeth came in after Mary died, she started out being fairly tolerant and certainly more open to the new Protestant ways but when the Catholics plotted against her and plotted to overthrow her, and then it was all uh, entangled with political, p- with politics in general, European politics, because of course the Spanish Inquisition was going on in Spain at the same time Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King, was cracking down on Protestants in France to the harsh extent that over two hundred thousand fled France between 1685 and 1715, and many of them came to England. Uh, And then, of course, when Guy Fawkes in 1605 decided he was going to try to blow up um, Parliament with the king in it on the first day of Parliament by putting gunpowder underneath the Houses of Parliament and and was really caught almost at the very last minute. I mean, they came very close to succeeding. Uh, That didn't go over very well with the English populace either. So... Um, even even nobility like Winifred Maxwell and Maxwell and and my heroine Bethan Glantaggart, who's based on her, even people in the nobility who were wealthy and had vast estates and so on, even they were significantly persecuted, and and found life to be very hard. I mean, laws were passed to the effect that you couldn't perform a mass in England. Priests were essentially forbidden. Um, you couldn't even own a Catholic object of worship like a rosary. And um, ordinary people were entitled to invade your house, as occurs at the beginning of my novel, to make sure that there's, there's no illegal hidden priests there. So it's a pretty wretched time for Catholics. Well, can you go in a, a little more detail about that opening scene? Because, you know, you brought up a lot of the uh, political context and some of the, the the violence that sprung up 
and specifically against noble persons. So, so what is the the situation that your character Bethann finds herself in in that opening scene? Well, her husband is not home, and that's the moment when some of these very fanatical Protestants decide that they they need to go and check on her her manor house because there's been a rumor that they were hosting an illegal priest. And of course, as you find out in that first chapter, they were and become terrified that he might actually be found. Um, And probably a lot of people have heard that some of these great houses had hidey holes that were built that priests could hide in. But if they found a priest, terrible things happened to them. I mean, they could be imprisoned, they could be executed, they could be torn apart by a mob. Um, so it, it was really a, a terrible situation. And, and to me, emblematic really of religious persecution of all time. And because there was so much uh, tumult and wars and so much death over religion in old Europe, I think that was one of the reasons that our own founding fathers declared that one of the touchstones of our country would be that there would be no state religion and everyone would have the freedom to practice whatever religion they wanted according to their own conscience. Well, that's a, that's a really good point about how, how that may have influenced our, our founding fathers here in the United States. Um, can you talk more about uh, what Bethann's husband was involved in with the Jacobites and how that was related to this religious persecution? Well, I have to give you a little bit more history. Sorry about that. But Charles II, um, was restored to the throne uh, after Oliver Cromwell died and people were so sick of his austere uh, enforcement of his chosen way of life on the populace of England. And so you entered a a really pretty uh, libertine debauched period in English history led by the king himself. But Charles II was a very clever character and he always zigzagged and nobody ever knew really where he stood on any policy. He played both ends against the middle, as they say. But when he died in 1685, his brother, James II, who was known to be a Catholic, came to the throne. And and he also was married to a very pious Italian Catholic, Queen Mary Beatrice. And the public sort of grumbled about that. They didn't really like it. But James was getting along in years, and they hadn't had any children. And his daughters, his older daughters, Mary and Anne, were both raised as Protestants. So everybody figured, well, you know, he'll die childless, and then we'll get a Protestant dynasty, because surely Mary or Anne or both will have children. And so this little Catholic nightmare will be brief and will be over soon. But he made two terrible mistakes. And one was that he actually tried to get a declaration of tolerance passed in Parliament, which would have given everybody religious freedom, uh, even people who were not religious. And if you can imagine, this is a time when everyone was required to to, to attend Church of England services or to pay a fine, and that fine grew over time. To try to offer everyone in England complete freedom of conscience, uh, I mean, to think that the English could have had complete religious freedom as early as 1688, but basically they didn't want it. And the reason was they were so distrustful of him and so distrustful of Catholics that many people thought it was just an excuse to put Catholics back in power. 
and, and in the end try to turn England back to Catholicism. And the Whigs, the party in power, they didn't want to lose their power either. So there was that. And then the second terrible mistake he, met, he made was that his wife had a child. A son was born to them in June 1688, and that scared everybody because they thought, okay, we thought we were just going to have to endure this for a few years, but now it looks like we may have a Catholic dynasty with this new prince. And so in the end, what happened was that William of Orange invaded. He was married to Mary, James's oldest daughter, the Protestant, uh, in what was <laughs> so-called the Glorious Revolution. I don't think it was so glorious, but anyway. And James, whose father had been executed, Charles I, and had always feared that that would be his fate, he and his family fled to France. And as a matter of fact, Beth and Glantagrit's family also fled. And there's some dramatic episodes earlier in her life uh, when they had to go into exile. But anyway, he fled to France. And then um, William and Mary ruled, and then they died. And then Anne, the younger sister, ruled. And when she died, um, by that time, Parliament had, had passed a law in 1701 that said no more Catholic kings. And not only that, no more Catholic rulers who were even, no more rulers who were even married to a Catholic. So they passed over 50 closer relatives who were Catholics to find the first Protestant relative who happened to be this fairly obscure fellow, George, Elector of Hanover, a little, a little principality in the middle of Europe. Um, and it happened that George did not speak English, didn't know very much about England, was sort of a sordid character himself, as I describe in detail in the novel. And they brought him to London and uh, ha he had his coronation and he became this German fellow, this foreign guy became uh, the King of England. And as you can imagine, there were a lot of people even who weren't Catholics who weren't too happy about that. And in the meantime, here's the young Prince James growing up, the son of James II in exile in France so they had to, what to many people's mind was a true English prince that they could put on the throne, except that he happened to be a Catholic. And his supporters were called Jacobites because James is Jacobus or Jacobus in Latin. So that was, that was the name they were given. And when Anne died and this foreigner was brought in, many of the Catholics thought this is our big chance to finally overthrow this foreign guy and put our own prince um, on the British throne. Well, it's, it's really all quite fascinating and quite intricate. Um, you had to weave all of those intricacies into this novel in some way, obviously through the character of Beth Ann, um, who is a heroine in her own right. But obviously there's she she has help along the way. She has friends along the way. She has obstacles along the way. Can you talk a little bit more about her specifics, um, what she went through, and some of the people that helped her along the way that are, are um, quite interesting characters in your novel? Well, one of the things that I loved about Winifred Maxwell's original story was that she was helped in her effort to try to save her husband's life by a group of women friends. It was all women together, working together, who accomplished this. And in the true story, I think most of her helpers were not of her social class level, and some were actually her servants. 
Uh, and so in the novel, I tried to make it a little more interesting by making these women helpers um, more complicated, more uh, closer to uh, the social level of Beth and herself. And one of them, in fact, pretty much invented character, but I had so much fun with her, is a sister um, that called her the wayward sister, Aylwin, who's been alienated from, from the family for 25 years. They've had no contact with her. She did not go into exile with the rest of the family. She stayed. She was uh, very successful at the court of William and Mary. She married these elderly men, one right after another, more powerful than the one before. Uh, and, you know, led a sort of a checkered life and essentially abandoned the Roman Catholicism that her parents had given up so much for. And so part of the novel revolves around whether Bethan can succeed in enlisting this estranged um, sister with this uh, checkered past into her project to try to save her husband and whether it will make a difference if she does. And then the other women characters are, are pretty interesting too. Lucy, her long-term companion, and uh, another woman that she happens to meet along the way to London. Uh, so that was really fun sort of creating those characters. Can you talk more about uh, fictionalizing parts of this story? Um, did you find yourself uh, challenged to create those fictional scenes and characters? Um, being that you have more of a nonfiction background. And so what was that like for you? Well, I had already published three nonfiction books. And so, you know, I thought I would be writing nonfiction, you know, for the rest of my career. But when I found this story, um, Colin, the, basically the, the top-notch biography of Winfred Maxwell has already been written by one of her descendants. And it's very detailed. And also this descendant had access to a lot of collections of private papers and things like that that would be very hard for me to get access to. I would have had to spend a lot of time in, in Scotland and in England to do that. And anyway, I thought she'd already done an excellent job and there was no need to repeat it. And so I began to wonder if I couldn't maybe bring this story more to life and get more people to know about it if I did try my hand at fiction. And uh, it's, it's a little daunting, but there was so much detail in the biography that that kind of gave me a good start. And um, to tell you the truth, it, was, it turned out to be very liberating. And the first thing that was so much fun was no footnotes when you're writing fiction. And the second thing was that was even more eye-opening was you can basically change anything you want. You're not a slave to the facts. Now, I'm sure you've talked about this with historical fiction with a lot of other writers, you know, how far can you stray from the truth before you lose your credibility? And I think you have to stick as closely as you can to the known framework of the time. You know, you can't bring an Egyptian pharaoh into 16th century England uh, unless you're writing fantasy or science fiction. But in historical fiction, you're, you're limited in some ways but in other ways, you have a very free hand. And besides creating the character of the wayward sister, I also got to thinking about, we don't really know very much about the people who were guards at the Tower of London at that time. You know, the famous yeoman of the guard. 
And, and so I felt like it was essential to the story to know more about, to create characters, individuals, instead of letting these guards be just faceless people, because that would certainly influence how successful she was going to be. And that led me to create another villain, a guard who is, um, is ferociously anti-Catholic and really threatens the possibility that Bethan will have any success at all because he's constantly watching her and he doesn't trust anything that she does. Um, so then she has to deal with that as well, which makes her plot even more complicated. Hey listeners, I hope you're enjoying my interview with Patricia Bernstein. Before returning to the interview, let's take a quick break to hear from today's sponsor. Kirstine McKenzie is delighted to announce the release of her debut historical fiction novel, Lagarde et Cousses, The Life of John Hamilton, 1620-1689, Part 1, available from all major book stockists. A secret war rages between Louis XIV and William of Orange, a conflict which threatens the security of France and a fight that will determine the future of Europe. Only John Hamilton and his men in Lagarde Cousses can protect the French realm. This is the story of Lieutenant General John Hamilton, the head of an elite group of soldiers in Lagarde Cousses tasked with keeping France safe from its enemies. This sweeping tale carries the reader through the 1641 Irish Rebellion, the Scottish Highlands, the Thirty Years' War, the Franco-Prussian War, the Franco-Dutch War, and into the heart of Louis XIV's France. Um, it's interesting to hear you say that that fictionalizing was was a bit liberating for you. Uh, I'm curious at the end of the day because this press is called history through fiction in and as you mentioned, you know there is a balance between fact and fiction. Um, did you have any difficulty finding that balance and what ultimately do you want readers to take away? Is it more of uh, the compelling, story of Bethan, or is it more of the history, or, or how much of both do you want readers to get from this? Well, of course, I want to illustrate the pernicious effects of religious persecution, um, but that is kind of, that's sort of in the air you breathe in the story. Um, I can't really say it's background, but uh, even more importantly, I think I wanted to, because, you know, we still have religious persecution today. It's not gone. And, and it's even been a serious problem in this country where we're supposed to have religious freedom. Because I wrote a previous book about the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, and one of their great hatreds, believe it or not, in the 1920s was anti-Catholicism. Uh, you know, reaching all the way back to Guy Fawkes and Bloody Mary and all of that. It just never goes away. And of course, there's a lot of religious persecution that we know of in other countries. And it's it's one of the most evil forms of persecution because people who think God is telling them to do this um, really have no bounds. 
But beyond that, what I really wanted to do was to make the story of Winifred Maxwell through Beth and Glenn Taggart much better known to people. And when my husband and I were in England and Scotland in September, we were very surprised to learn that um, even there, a lot of people don't know her story. And to me, she's a great feminist heroine who should get credit. I even, I've even said I think there should be a Winifred Maxwell Day in the English calendar um, because she was so important. I mean, in those days, you know, what could women do if their husbands were condemned to death? Um, you could present a petition of mer for mercy to the king. You could present a petition for mercy to parliament. And if they refused to help you, um, that was about it. Uh, you could just go home and prepare to mourn the loss of your loved one. And my character, based on Winifred's character, just wasn't going to do that. She wasn't going to give up. She was absolutely determined that she would at least try to do something more. And the few people who did escape from the Tower of London in those days, if they managed it at all, they uh, would knot sheets together and drop out of a casement window onto a boat that was waiting for them on the Thames. Well, that wasn't anything that Bethan and her friends could manage. And in any case, I make the point in the book that the windows of his cell were nailed shut. So that was not going to happen. Nobody had ever tried to do the creative thing that she attempted until she tried it. So it was pretty much a brand new idea. And the other thing, as I mentioned before, that I love about it is that she did all this classically with the help of her women friends. And without any violence, nobody was hurt. So all of those were elements that I really wanted to get across. You mentioned that you were in England and Scotland back in September. Can you tell our listeners what you were in the UK for? And then also, what kind of travel research did you do for this novel? Well, uh, while we were in Scotland in 2014, somebody told me that before Diana Gabaldon started her Outlander series, she had never even visited Scotland. So <laughs> I know how they feel, even though I, I know how she feels, because even though I had been there, I had not been on the ground in the places where uh, Winifred Maxwell lived. Um, and one of the most exciting things we did in September was to actually find where the family estate had been and walk across those farmlands and see the remains of the old orchard and the beautiful old fountain that was still left on the grounds and the stone arch that Mary Queen of Scots rode through when she visited that grand house that's long gone. In fact, even the house that followed it is long gone. Uh, but it meant so much to me to be in that place and see some of the workers' cottages that had been converted into lovely little homes that, you know, independent people live in now. Um, that was just, that meant a whole lot. And of course, we spent a whole day at the Tower of London. I had been to the Tower of London before, but it was years ago. And, um, and that was very exciting too, including spending a lot of time at the what was called the Queen's House while Elizabeth was Queen. Now it's called the King's House because we have Charles III. That, and a lot of people have seen those pictures, even if they haven't been to the tower, the, um, the half-timbered Tudor type little dwellings that are very much, very unlike the big stone fortresses that characterize the rest of the Tower of London. 
where, according to my story, that's where Gavin was kept. And that area has a lot of history, too. I mean, the the legend was that it was built to house Anne Boleyn before she was killed. But um, but the truth was they weren't finished until several several years after she died. But I think it was always kind of vaguely associated with her. And then that council chamber on the third floor is where Guy Fawkes was interrogated after he was tortured in the Tower of London. So there's a lot of history there, too. And it was just, uh, it was wonderful to be there. And we happened to be there when the Queen died. And we got to see some of the ceremonies, like in at the Lincoln Cathedral, the officials of the city, all in their old medieval regalia, carrying this great golden mace that was given to the city by Charles I, and reading Charles, the new Charles's proclamation of accession. That was pretty exciting, too. It's like, you know, Americans never lose their fascination for the British monarchy. And when we came back home, I remember reading some complaining editorials, you know, why are we giving all this space to the death of Queen Elizabeth when there's so much more important things going on in our own country and we have an election coming up and blah, blah, blah. But you can't stop Americans from being fascinated with the British monarchy. I think the the crown on Netflix is evidence of that. Oh, for sure, for sure. And and we're, it's just now in its final season and it's been fascinating. But another thing I learned in researching this book was, you know, the Diana paid a certain price and so did Charles for adultery, but back in those days, you might be killed or executed or or forced into permanent house arrest. If you were unfaithful to the monarch that you were married to, and that's described, that's explained in the book too, and the connection of all of that with, with George the First, who was our first um, not very savory German king. Well, I want to ask you about uh, your path to publication. It's it's a, a journey that's different for every author, and you have your unique experience as a nonfiction author first. So what's that journey been like for you and how long has it taken? What have been some of the ups and downs of it? Well, um, I had published these nonfiction books, most of them before with Texas A&M University Press, which is a very nice press. And, um, and I enjoyed working with them a lot, but they don't do fiction. So it was basically starting all over again, um, even as a finalist for a major award from the Texas Institute of Letters for the last book and so forth and so on. It's like you're still starting all over again. I don't have an agent and it's more difficult than ever now. I'm sure all your writers would agree, Colin, because of the consolidation of all the major publishing houses, which has been going on for a while and getting worse and worse. And now I guess maybe because of antitrust laws, they're not going to be able to consolidate anymore. Um, so it's just really hard. And the the breakthrough for me, well, you know, I think self-publishing has become much more acceptable in recent years than it used to be. But I just, you know, having always published with a press, I just couldn't go that route. And um, of course, I became aware of you and your company um, because of the Historical Novel Society Conference. And decided, you know, go to go with a small press um, once you indicated that you were interested. So 
Let me ask you something. I'm curious, and I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, of all the manuscripts that are submitted to you, what percentage would you say you accept? Or are you overwhelmed with manuscripts? Are people aware of your press? Well, I'm not overwhelmed with manuscripts. And one of the techniques I use to make it manageable for me is just having a submission period instead of being open year round. So that helps focus. Most of the submissions come in that first few weeks when we reopen for submissions, which is usually September through December. Um, but throughout the submission period, I generally get between 70 and 100 submissions. Wow. And uh, ultimately, uh, we're only able to select one or two each submission period. Um, I'll do full requests for about 10 or 12 manuscripts. So it, it is one or two percent that ultimately make it through to publication. And, and I, I want to tell anyone who's listening that I, I really appreciate the interest in the press. I appreciate every single submission. And I can tell you that I learn so much history that I would never know anything about. Every, every person has found you know, some corner of history that you don't find in textbooks, you don't hear about very often. So that's really enjoyable for me to get to learn some of that history. I don't enjoy having to reject so many submissions, but that's just part of the, the business. Um, and I only, you know, we only have a, a limited amount of resources to, to work with. So it, yeah, it is quite, uh, it, it's a very minute number of manuscripts that ultimately will be published. Well, do you find that you, uh, when you start reading something, you know almost right away, whether it's something that you ha might have an interest in, or it's either not a subject that interests you, or it's not very well written, or whatever. I mean, can you recognize that pretty quickly, or do you have to go pretty deep into some of these to make that determination? I can recognize it pretty quickly. Um, as the publisher, the biggest advantage is that I can choose what interests me, what's fascinating to me. So right off the top, even if it's a could be a very well-written manuscript, if it's not something that that can hold my interest, then then it's not something I'm going to be interested in reading all the way through and, and analyzing. So right off the bat, I, I know if I'm interested or not just just by mm -hmm. looking at the 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 query letter. Mm -hmm. um, then. You can tell a lot by a first paragraph, um, so I I recommend authors out there to to make sure their their first paragraph or first page is clean and is in a a place they want it to be. Um, so that's kind of my next next indicator is just looking at that first paragraph, and then I go in. You know, I I request that um, people send me ten to twenty pages. And so I, then I just go into that, that first 10 to 20 pages, and if it holds my interest, and if it's well-written, then I'll, then I'll request the full manuscript. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's a tip to some listeners out there, I hope. Uh, well, for me, it was wonderful just to find out about you, which I never would have probably had it not been for the Historical Novel Society. And you're coming to that convention this summer, right? Yeah. Um, so as I had asked you earlier, I, I'm not sure if you mentioned it or not, but you know, there's a historical novel society, which obviously focuses on historical fiction. 
and they have um, a biannual conference in North America. And yeah, we'll, History Through Fiction will be at the San Antonio. We plan to be at the conference in San Antonio, June 8th through the 11th. And you uh, recently attended their, is it European conference or is it just? Uh... I think it's just British. Okay. And uh, so that was in September of last year and they do that biannually as well. But yeah, the Historical Novel Society is a um, wonderful uh, organization that we try to uh, work with as much as we can. Um, it's I, I find it to be fascinating, but you know, when I went to the one in England that was in Durham, because they always try to have it in an interesting historical place, which San Antonio certainly is. I live in Houston. I've been there many times. It seemed like there was so much emphasis in the presentations on marketing. And that's another thing you learn about publishing a book today. And you know it better than I do is that it's like having another job marketing the books, never mind getting them written. I mean, in fact, you, I'm having to fight right now to have time to work on my next novel uh, because, it, it, you know, I'm still working full time. And I sing with a little opera company here and and then trying to, you know, scrabble out some time to start to keep moving with this next novel I'm working on because there's, you know, the website to work on. There's uh, all the marketing that you want to do with podcasts like this and uh, other virtual forms of reaching out to authors. And uh, it's just, <laughs> it's such a long-term job. Yeah. Well, I, you know, writers out there can definitely relate. And I think that's the theme of the North American conference coming up in June is the working writer and just how, yeah. how do we manage all, all those um, obligations in order to get your work out there. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, you're, you're still, writing and you did talk a little bit about Winifred Maxwell's um, background and some of the things she went through before what takes place in a noble cunning so what what uh, have you written more about Winifred well the funny thing is I got so carried away with her story in the beginning that I wrote 853 pages I mean it's about the length of war and peace Nobody wants a novel, a debut novel that length. I don't think they even want a novel from a very experienced novelist that's that long. Uh, so what you're getting in A Noble Cunning is the last third of the story. And I still have a lot of material I wrote about all the adventures that she had, many of them very true to life, before she married Gavin and went to live in Scotland and, and, and went through this last part of the story. Uh, among others, they had to run away. They had to escape England when the king did. And there's an interesting story to that. And uh, in, in my version of it, even the young teenage Bethan ends up sort of saving the whole party while they're on the road trying to get out of England. And then she goes to Versailles and she attracts the attention of a predatory aristocrat who pursues her almost through the rest of the story. And uh, so there's all of that to contend with. And the persecution is nonstop. As a child, my Bethan and her sister, one of her other sisters, witnessed, witnessed a, um, an anti-Pope procession through the streets of uh, London at night on the anniversary of the accession of Elizabeth I to the throne. Um, and that was, a, I mean, if you can imagine being a member 
of a religious group whose religion is is being uh, parodied, made fun of, derided, attacked in an enormous procession, a really um, kind of an ugly, ugly procession of the lowest class of Londoners through a midnight through the midnight streets of, of London. It's pretty terrifying. And for the rest of her life, she's sort of uncomfortable around crowds at night lit by torchlights because it, it brings back that whole experience to her. Um, so there's a lot of dramatic stuff that happens even before, before the Jacobite rebellion and before her efforts to save her husband's life. Well, and I think it's important that you keep sharing that history. And I know that readers that get a chance to know Bethan in a noble cunning will look forward to to getting to know her better in those stories. Right. If I get an, an opportunity to publish them, if there's interest. And I've even had people ask me, well, what happens after the effort to save Gavin's life? What happens to Bethan for the rest of her life? And there's some interesting story to be developed there, too. Well, Patricia, I want to thank you so much. Uh, this has been a pleasure talking to you. I want to congratulate you on a noble, a noble cunning, and thank you for you know publishing it with history through fiction. And I just wish you all the success in the world moving forward. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. It's pretty exciting, you know, when you've encountered nose to have somebody say, "Hey, I really like your stuff. Let's do something with it." <laughs> <laughs>